Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 101 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. My name is Luke Johnson. I am one of your hosts. I am a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And joining me, of course, is... This is Michelle Tarbox. I am an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. And of course, the third member of our hosts is the Pimping Bell. The Pimping Bell exists to highlight especially question-worthy content. So if you pick, uh, so pick up your ears, prick up your ears, that's, do something with your ears. <laughs> when you hear the Pimping Bell, um, especially if you work in an academic institution, these are good questions to ask residents. Or if you are a resident, these are good questions somebody may ask you or that you can use to teach your fellow residents. Michelle, you and I recently came back from the Hawaii Dermatology Seminar. Absolutely. It was lovely, and I learned a lot. Yes, we learned a whole bunch. So I wanted to, listeners, tell all you guys the stuff that we learned. Hooray! So we're going to talk about our, an article or two on this episode, of course, as we normally do, but thought it was would be valuable to recap some of the highlights from Hawaii Dermatology in terms of, uh, in terms of the learning, in terms of the other highlights, like hanging out on the beach and eating good food and seeing palm trees. You guys will just have to pretend all of that was awesome. So in terms of stuff that I learned, I learned a lot about isotretinoin. I always <laughs> love learning about isotretinoin because we use so much of it. Mm-hmm. So, oh, and I should also say the speakers generally had a really great job of not only mentioning a lot of these points, but also citing the sources. So this is also going to inspire a number of articles that I'm sure we'll discuss over the next 10 to 20 episodes. So mm-hmm. look forward to that as well. So one thing that we learned about isotretinoin was that omega-3 fatty acids, one gram a day, can help with the mucocutaneous side effects. Mm, cool. Mm-hmm. Dry eyes on isotretinoin tends to resolve about six months after treatment, though some changes can be more persistent, and omega 3s can perhaps help with that too. Low dose isotretinoin does seem to work as well as higher doses and seems to lead to higher satisfaction as well. There was some discussion that the way we do things in the United States might be different with isotretinoin, probably because of the eye pledge system. Like, I think our normal approach to isotretinoin dosing is a MIG per kg, like per day, but other com- countries, I think, consider half a mg per kg to be a kind of high dose. And so if you're just giving somebody t- 10 or 20 milligrams a day, they can still get to the proper endpoint and they might have higher satisfaction, presumably because their side effects are not so severe. There was a study out of New Zealand, apparently, that said treat until the patient is clear for two months, mm-hmm. regardless of whatever dose they end up on, which sort of tracks with an article we discussed a couple years ago here that said treat until clear for, tre- for two months and also to 160 mg per kg. That was episode 39, where we discussed that. Thank you. I use that in my clinic like routinely. That's, that's Those are my goals, and that's what I tell patients. Exactly. But apparently, this study said you don't have to worry too much about 160 mix per kg, just clear for two months. And apparently, there have only been 25 case reports of pancreatitis on isotretinoin, only three of whom had hypertriglyceridemia. Again, fuel for my fire of not checking <laughs> labs. <laughs> I like that. Well, I really enjoyed the conference as well. One of the speakers was a contact dermatitis expert and talked about some upcoming contact allergens for us to be aware of. Dr. Jeff Yu. I think he's going to be on the podcast sometimes too. So look forward to him. 
We're very excited to have him on. Um, he mentioned that patients can develop rashes to continuous glucose monitoring devices due to an allergen called isobornal acrylate which is an acrylate monomer that's in plasticizers and UV-cured glue and casings for some of these devices that are actually directly in contact with the skin 24 hours a day, um, including things like the Freestyle Libre and Omnipod, which can actually cause allergic contact dermatitis in up to a third of patients. So it takes time to develop the contact um, allergy to the isobornal acrylate. The more the person's using it, the more likely they are to become allergic to it. He made a very good um, analogy to this with neosporin. So in countries where neosporin is not available over the counter, contact allergy rates to that medication are low. But in countries like ours where neosporin is over the counter, contact allergy rates to that allergen are quite high. So if you do have a patient that becomes sensitized to isobornal acrylate that can be in these adhered glucose monitoring devices, you don't need to despair. The Freestyle Libre 2 is a device that is isobornal acrylate free. You can also use some hydrocolloid, um, the little hydrocolloid dressings that are very thin, like a duodorm thin spot. And you can actually pierce usually the device right through that to prevent direct contact to the skin with that allergen. I learned about hormonal acne. So OCPs, we often use for hormonal acne, and we warn people about some potential side effects, but we don't often tell them other nice things about OCPs, like they can protect against endometrial cancer, and maybe colon cancer too. I, I'm embarrassed to admit, wasn't aware that migraines are a contraindication for OCPs, so don't give them to your migraine patients. If you think a patient needs an endocrine workup for their acne... 72% of the time, it's going to be PCOS. Rarely, it can be late-onset congenital adrenal hyperplasia as well. And then, of course, very rarely, there are various tumors that can cause high levels of um, endocrine hormones that could potentially give somebody acne. So they this speaker recommended checking if you're going to check hormone levels. First of all, it matters when you do it. So assuming the patient is female, you want to check during their menses, assuming they have a period, and you want to have the labs drawn between 8 and 9 a.m., and if they're on hormonal treatments, you want to stop those for at least a month, maybe up to three months, according to some endocrinologists, before checking the labs. And the labs you want to check are DHEAS, both free and total testosterone, a pregnancy test, especially if not menstruating. And you can consider 17-hydroxyprogesterone, which could find this congenital adrenal hyperplasia thing. And you could consider sex hormone binding globulin, because apparently that's rarely abnormal as well. Speaking of a few more contact allergens of relevance, another one that we've covered previously on the podcast in episode 28 is called acetophenone azine. This is generated during the production of something called EVA foam, which is used in things like flip-flops and ski boots and goggles, bike saddles and, knee and shin pads. It's a potent contact allergen, and you can avoid it by finding EVA foam-free padding. Um, so prebax foam, so PBAX foam or TPU foam is better for people who are sensitized to acetophenone azine. Aluminum also can be an allergen. We can have that as an excipient in vaccines, such as the hepatitis A and B vaccine, the HPV vaccine, pneumococcal vaccine, and these can cause granulomas in children. It's very rare, less than 1% chance. It's irritating, but not dangerous. So you still want to vaccinate these children. You just might have to treat them with some topical steroids or in extreme cases, intralesional Kenlog. Rosacea. There was one study that said hydroxychloroquine was about the same as doxycycline over a period of eight weeks. Hydroxychloroquine is pretty safe, especially for pregnant patients. Might be a good choice for them. And then rosacea fulminans. Have you ever seen it, Michelle? Yes, I have. And it is horrible. It was a beautiful pregnant lady that her face just exploded with rosacea like early in her pregnancy. And so we were trying very carefully to manage that. 
Apparently, pregnancy is a common trigger, mm-hmm. and the normal demographic is a young woman, and it's in the mid-face, and it's sudden onset. Treatments are PO steroids, and then, if you can, isotretinoin, yeah. just like with acne fulminans. In pregnancy, of course, that's not an option, so you use erythromycin and steroids if necessary. Mm-hmm. The contact allergy of the allergen of the year, Luke, do you know what it is for 2023? Remind me. It's lanolin. So good old lanolin. Lanolin, remember, is sheep sebum. So the way they get it is they take the wool that's been sheared off of the sheep and they press it and the oil that comes out is lanolin. Um, We should be familiar with lanolin because it's in Aquaphor and some of the Eucerin products. And it can be very useful for a lot of patients, but people can become contact sensitized to it. I have a memorable patient from my residency where the patient had severe contact dermatitis around her eyes. And she was only using Aquaphor and it just kept getting worse and worse. So we patch tested her and her patch test positivity to lanolin was like three plus with vesiculation. It was crazy. Um, So the lanolin can be that contact allergen and it is higher risk of sensitization over broken skin. Hydratinitis separativa, one of our most underserved diseases in dermatology. But there's been a lot of good research into it over the past few years. So I'm optimistic about its future. Some of the things I learned about it at this seminar. So a patient having at least two boils in the intertriginous areas over the previous six months is pretty sensitive and specific for HS. So sometimes you'll get these patients and you're like, gee, they do have a nodule here. Is it really HS though? It's pretty mild. So apparently that's a pretty decent screening question. Two boils over six months. The speaker emphasized that treating early may help prevent progression because once the sinus tracts form, they ain't going anywhere unless you cut them out or something. So treat fairly early and aggressively was, I think, the upshot of this. Stop the sinus tract formation and then destroy them once they appear. Hydradinitis separativa carries the highest risk of suicide of any disease in dermatology. If you want to treat these nodules with intralesional triamcinolone, this Um, Expert recommended using the 40 milligram per ml strength, which is like the highest it comes, and injects 0.2 ml into each lesion. Um, Some another alternative antibiotic to like my good old doxy and Clinton rifampin and stuff, levofloxacin, 500 milligrams POBID for up to two weeks, perhaps to calm down a flare. And if you are treating a flare, recommend treating it for one to three weeks. If you're using antibiotics for maintenance, do it for three months to a year. If you're treating it with spironolactone, which I consider a pretty safe medicine that has decent medical data for HS compared to, you know, our various not so great data for it, consider starting at 75 milligrams. I usually start at 50 for like acne, so maybe a little bit higher for HS. Adalimumab, of course, the only uh, FDA approved treatment for HS currently. If that fails and infliximab fails, then you might trial secukinumab or ustekinumab if you can get them. For flares, you can use prednisone. We've talked about this once or twice on the podcast. The speaker specifically recommends 20 milligrams daily for a week, which is honestly less than I thought would be appropriate. So that'll change the way I do things. And then finally, rescue therapy. Some people are using IV ertapenem. So we also talked and learned about um, sarcoidosis associated with uh, checkpoint inhibitors. So Jeff Callan did this part of the presentation and was discussing, you know, both the significance of sarcoidosis, PG and dermatomyositis. And as we know, of course, sarcoidosis, a systemic disease that can affect the lungs, eye, liver, heart, CNS, 
joints and can cause hypercalcemia, the skin disease doesn't necessarily correlate with systemic severity in this particular condition. But there is the possibility also for PD-1-associated sarcoid. And in that condition, ocular disease can be a harbinger of systemic sarcoidosis developing. These patients can have involvement of the skin and lungs, and they tend to improve with treatment with prednisone. They can also sometimes have um, vasculitis. Vitiligo. For segmental vitiligo, which is kind of its own different beast, and I normally it's like don't bother treating it because I feel like it's almost like a birthmark. There's something about that skin that makes it want to be vitiligenous. But this speaker said if it's early in the disease course, you can still trial topicals or narrowband UVB for six months. Signs of instability in vitiligo include kebnerization, confetti-like lesions, and trichrome vitiligo. So remember, that's when you got the vitiligenous skin is really pale, you got the normal skin color, and then in between those, there's kind of an in-between state. So all of that means the vitiligo is really active and you want to do something to shut it down. For topical treatment, this speaker recommended following up at 90 days. I'll admit I usually do six months, but perhaps I should see them earlier just to make sure they're actually doing stuff, they got their medicines and so on. For ultra-potent topical steroids like clobetasol, the speaker recommended one week on, one week off. For tacrolimus, BID until repigmentation and then twice weekly for maintenance. Apparently, the relapse rate for vitiligo is 40% if you just stop cold turkey, 10% if you use maintenance therapy like tacrolimus twice weekly. If you're going to treat with phototherapy, it does work best on the face. If there's no response after 72 sessions of phototherapy, it's probably not going to work. And finally, dexamethasone mini pulses. So I don't know if we've talked about this on the podcast before, but some experts um, use this. It seems to be more and more over the previous few years, like four milligrams a day just on Saturday and Sunday. Those dexamethasone mini pulses are apparently to achieve stability, not Mm -hmm. to repigment the skin. So if somebody has these signs of activity, these dexamethasone mini mini pulses might be good to arrest the progression, but don't expect necessarily repigmentation from it. We discussed um, beta-methasone mini-pulses versus azathioprine in vitiligo in episode 65. So similar, but not exactly the same. So we also talked with, well, we also had a lovely session with Dr. Adelaide Aber, who is a pediatric dermatologist, and she discussed some papular squamous diseases that affect children, including CAPE which is CARD-14-associated papulosquamous eruption. It kind of looks like psoriasis and PRP kind of had a baby together. Um, Eustachinumab tends to be a good treatment for this condition, and it is approved down to age 6 for psoriasis and down to age 2 for psoriatic arthritis. So that's a possibility that you can look into. Um, they also talked about spinosad and its potential utility to help treat patients who have scabies, which, of course, can cause the worst itch a human being can experience, worst at night. It has actually got both type 1 and type 4 hypersensitivity and involves IL-31. So of course, if you see papules on the palms, soles, penis, nipples, you have to prove that this is not scabies until you, until you kind of can exclude that otherwise. Um, patients can also have a good, uh, an improvement of the exam by using a hyphricator tip to scrape under the nails and then place any debris on the slide to examine to actually see if you can find mites or eggs in that scraping. And thanks to your teaching me once upon a time, Michelle, I usually will find a burrow with my dermatoscope 
and then scrape that little Delta bomber off and then find it. I feel like I don't even need to scrape. You have a dermatoscope and just look for these things. I agree. Like if you can see the mite with your dermatoscope lens and you're positive, that's the real Delta sign. I think you don't necessarily have to put the patient through a scraping. Sometimes I'll tell the patient, I've confirmed this looks like scabies. I can do a scraping to, to further confirm it, but I'm pretty confident. If you wouldn't mind for teaching purposes, I'd be happy to show my residents or my students. And most people actually want to see it themselves. So they're usually happy to let you. Pyoderma gangrenosum. If it's a patient post-op, give them systemic steroids to start with. And for patients with recalcitrant disease, TNF inhibitors could be helpful. We also um, had a really nice discussion about how to prevent bites and stings in children. Uh, one of the things that's very popular is citronella, which is an extract from grasses. And the oil of lemon eucalyptus can also be used. Permethrin spray, of course, can be used, or picardin. All of these are things that can be used topically to help prevent um, bites in children. You can also, of course, do behavior modification and things like that to try to protect them from those exposures. Dermatomyositis. For juvenile dermatomyositis, so kid, no malignancy screening is necessary, but you want to look out for calcinosis. Early and aggressive therapy can decrease the risk for later calcinosis. Dr. Eichenfeld had so many wonderful pearls in his talks, but one of the things that actually was useful for me this week in clinic was his discussion of idiopathic facial aseptic granuloma, which are sterile cysts that can occur on children's faces. They can get better over time. They can be helped by antibiotics, and they can be quite striking. Usually they're a little bit fluctuant and typically single, quite inflamed. The current approved nomenclature is aseptic facial granuloma, by the way. Um, the previous term was offensive, we now realize. Sorry about yeah. that. Uh, the I did notice that the acronym for that was, I was like, who came up with that acronym? But you well, know, it was decades ago. You, you live and you learn, and that's okay. But yes, aseptic facial granuloma, sterile cysts on the face of children. One of the things I found most interesting was this entity called head and neck dermatitis. It's not super well sorted out. It could be a hypersensitivity to Malassezia species and is seen as a subpop seen in a subpopulation of atopic dermatitis patients, but is thought to not be their atopic dermatitis. And it may or may not be the same thing as the dupilumab induced head and neck dermatitis. People are still trying to sort this out. If you have a patient that you think has this head and neck dermatitis, treat with either itraconazole 200 milligrams daily for two weeks or with fluconazole. I didn't grab the dose, but I'm guessing it's 150 milligrams also daily for two weeks. If the patient responds, then continue for at least two additional weeks and then you can move to pulse dosing if necessary. Topicals for some reason don't seem to work. We also talked about dysautonomia. So in dysautonomia, patients can present with livido. They can have difficulty with weakness um, because of imbalance in electrolytes. So they recommend that these patients have increased salt intake with small meals. They can benefit from desmopressin nasal spray that can help make the symptoms easier to manage. And this sort of exists along the spectrum of something we've all probably encountered over the recent past, which is POTS syndrome. So have you had any patients with POTS that you take care of, Luke? Sure. So these patients can really suffer from this, and usually it, it, it kind of strikes younger patients. So it's something that can also be sort of um, stigmatizing for these children because the post postural tachycardia syndrome, which is what POTS is, the heart rate, of course, goes very um, accelerated when the patient stands up from laying down, and it can cause them to become lightheaded. It can cause them to have symptoms such as fainting and things like that. But the challenging thing with POTS is that its presentation often can appear a little bit as if the person is, you know, just 
getting the vapors or something like this, but it's actually a very significant systemic um, condition. The patients can also have skin dryness because of reduced sweating. They can have increased allergies and inflammation. They can have dry eyes with sluggish pupils and light sensitivity because of this dysautonomia. And so detecting this and giving those patients proper treatment is very important. There's also some possibility that there's an increased rate of dysautonomia since the COVID pandemic. And um, we see worse worsening of this more with COVID infection than with vaccination. So it's a condition definitely we should be aware of. Hey, I want to make sure we've got time today to discuss some articles too. So I might just rattle through some of these real quick, Michelle, if that sounds okay. good to you. Sounds good to me. Keratolysis exfoliativa, peeling of the hands or the feet. It's not inflammatory. So anti-inflammatory medicines don't work. You want to use retinoids instead. Polypodium leucotomus, one of our favorite um, supplements, uh, one of the common brands is HelioCare. 240 milligrams a day is a, an appropriate dose for even a child, like a four-year-old child. Capsules can be emptied into food. There are sometimes available suspensions and chewable forms of this as well. If you're trying to teach a child how to take a pill, hmm. a couple of people had some ideas. You can try M&Ms of various sizes. So they have like the little tiny, tiny baby M&Ms. You might mm -hmm. start there. Also, somebody suggested to use white bread because you can like tear off a piece and like form a pill of various sizes. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Eichenfield described this phenomenon of kids with superficial symmetric erosions on the palms and feet that was from hanging on the edges of pools. <laughs> so if you, especially if you live in an area with lots of pools, you might look at that. You may have seen sunscreens that claim to have an additive called Helioplex. I didn't really know what that was, but apparently it keeps the sunscreen from like smearing it around after it's applied. So especially if people complain about like, getting it into their eyes or something, might be a good idea. You mentioned insect repellents a little bit. If you, Of course, we also want our patients to be putting on sunscreen. Sunscreen goes on first, then the repellent. For molluscum and warts, the, some of the thoughts are a little bit more optimistic than I had thought. So two-thirds of warts in a child apparently resolve after two years, a little better than I thought. Combination therapy, so freezing it and having the patient use sal acid at home, I would tell my patients, I suspect this increases the chances of it going away, but I'm not sure. Apparently, there's studies that say, yes, it does. Also, I used to tell patients, I'm not familiar with any studies that say like the prescription things, like the 5 fluoro fluorouracil slash sal acid compounded stuff is any more effective than the over-the-counter sal acid stuff, but apparently there are studies that say it is. So I guess it is better, though it's probably more expensive. Topical sodafavir. There are case reports of clearance of recalcitrant warts within weeks. The challenge is getting it because it can be expensive. There are various compounding pharmacies, including one called Chemistry RX. Hashtag not sponsored. <laughs> that can uh, mix up 15 grams of 1% Sadafavir cream for about $200. It's kind of a lot, but you put it on once to twice a day. And if it's going to work, it usually does so within four weeks. They recommend to do some monitoring, though. BMP, CBC, and UA if the patient has more than a few warts due to the potential for systemic absorption. Um, what else here for patients with bad atopic dermatitis? Um, lavender and tea tree oil apparently are bad. Studies with those two oils have shown that they have some estrogenic effects, including some cases of gynecomastia, mm -hmm. especially in the teens. Showering at school, like after gym, does seem to improve outcomes for the atopic dermatitis. For infantile hemangiomas, if you're treating with propranolol, which you probably should be if it's significant at all, I've always told parents to hold it if the child is sick, like vomiting, diarrhea, not eating well, but I have not been telling them to hold it if the child is sick and wheezing and coughing. Apparently I should be. 
Coarctation of the aorta, by the way, contraindication for propranolol. So if you think a patient has face, do the echo before you start propranolol. Port wine stains. Turns out they're actually composed of post-capillary venules, not actual capillaries. Isn't that kind of weird? <laughs> and then if you have a patient with neonatal lupus, remember mom has a risk of producing future children with neonatal lupus. But if she takes hydroxychloroquine during the pregnancy, apparently that can decrease that risk. COVID. Over 90% of kids in the U.S. have had COVID. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, the speaker said that MISC, so this multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, is kind of a SARS-CoV-2 specific form of Kawasaki disease, which I think kind of makes a lot of sense. And uh, those are all the highlights I wanted to highlight. I have one last one I want to include just because it could be potentially important in, in an acute setting. So if you have a child in the NICU that has an area that looks like aplasia acutis congenita, but it changes size when the child is crying, that could be sinus paracranii, which is a communication between intra and extracranial environments. And so that, of course, requires a higher level of concern and intervention. Whew. All right. Look at all the stuff we learned during this week-long conference, but we compressed it all into 20 minutes for you, listeners. Huzzah. <laughs> um, also, since this is episode 101, you know, normally an episode like multiple of 10, episode of 100, we would do what we call our Dermosphere Clip Show and just remind ourselves what we learned over the previous 10 episodes. We didn't do that for episode 100 because that was kind of a special episode and we didn't have time to get to it. So we'll do that at the end of our discussion today, which gives us a little bit of time to do our normal thing and discuss some recent articles. Awesome. So, Michelle. Yes, Luke. Have you ever had a patient with plaque psoriasis? I, in fact, have. Have you <laughs> yeah. ever treated such a patient with a biologic agent? Why, yes, in fact, I have. And my guess is that that patient probably responded very well because the medicines are very effective these days. You're, you're correct on all fronts, man. You're like batting a thousand. Well, now let me ask you, have you or the patient ever wanted to then stop the medicine and see what that, happens? That has also happened. So this is a bit of a conundrum. I was hanging out in clinic with member of Team Dermosphere, Michael Birdsall. He's a medical Woo! student here at the University of Utah. And this is a question that came up. It comes up with in my patients from time to time. Like, do you ever think that you can stop their psoriasis biologic? Like, first of all, why would you be able to? Psoriasis is a chronic disease, right? Well, like, maybe whatever their body was doing to make psoriasis has gone away, perhaps, or maybe just being treated with biologic for so long kind of like teaches their immune system to calm the F down and it no longer wants to make psoriasis <laughs> as a result. Maybe. Who knows? Maybe we don't know yet, um, but I sometimes run into this issue of wanting to stop these biologics. Mm -hmm. So we have a couple articles today that have looked into that issue. So the first one I want to discuss, actually, Michael found both of these articles for us. So thanks, Michael. So this is out of the Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology. It has nothing to do with cosmetics, though. And it's called... <laughs> Clinical Course of Psoriasis Patients That Discontinued Biologics During the COVID-19 Pandemic. The authors are out of Turkey, and so I will mispronounce their names. Sorry, guys. Phyllis Topologlu-Demir and Aise Sarap Karadag. So 
There's a quote in this article that I found helpful to start the conversation with. They say, despite more than 20 years of clinical experience in biological therapy for psoriasis, optimal treatment strategies after achieving remission and or low disease activity is still are still not well defined. They also say there are insufficient recommendations concerning in which patient group biological agents can be discontinued and whether the treatment can be interrupted or applied intermittently. Like maybe we can give people a supply of whatever biologic agent and they can just give themselves a shot every so often if they feel like they're having a flare. Who knows? So this study took advantage of a natural experiment known as the COVID pandemic, which you may have also heard of, Michelle. <laughs> oh, just so, a little... At the beginning of the pandemic, especially, many patients, even those with moderate to severe psoriasis, discontinued their biologics, especially when there were few recommendations available. Either the patient was worried about the immunosuppressive effects, or perhaps they did it at the suggestion of their treating provider, again, because we just didn't know a lot at the beginning of the pandemic. I think since then, we've discovered that it's pretty much safe to continue them in almost everybody. Um, So this study a multi-center retrospective review got 169 of these patients who had interrupted their psoriasis medicine during the pandemic. They were all adult patients and they wanted to see what happened to them. And unfortunately for the patients, I suppose, fortunately for the pharmaceutical companies, the results were not so great. Mm -hmm. Um, By the way, these patients are on average off of meds for only 18 weeks. So that's like four and a half months, which like really isn't all that long. Yeah. So almost everybody got worse off of the medicine. About half of them just relapsed. And another like 40%, they didn't relapse, but they worsened noticeably. A total of 82% of patients developed new lesions. So maybe only like 10 to 20% of people were able to stop the medicine without worsening. But hey, 10 to 20% isn't 0%. So that's something. And as I said before, like, What's going on with these patients who successfully stopped it? Is there something about psoriasis or about having treated it with biologics that can make some kind of permanent change? Don't know. But of these people, 17% had increased joint findings as well, and 21% had increased nail findings. So things did go south off of medicine. Factors associated with worsening or relapse include alcohol use during the biologics-free period, Total time off of the biologics makes sense. The longer you're off of it, the more likely you are to relapse, especially if you were off for a year or more. And they said the presence of an additional triggering factor. So the same sorts of things that trigger psoriasis in the first place could perhaps trigger it to come back or get worse. Like they cited stress, infection, and quote, medications. Protective factors included specifically the biologic agents secukinumab and ustekinumab though it's probably helpful to know that not all biologic medications were represented in their sample. But of the ones that were represented, represented, those in particular, if you were on those, you had a greater chance of not relapsing. They do cite a couple previous studies that listed other protective factors as including biologic naivete, like this is the first one you were on. <laughs> if you responded really well to your therapy, both in terms of how much it improved your disease and how quickly it improved. If you treated a patient early in their disease course with biologics, then if the patient's psoriasis wasn't as bad to start with, like if they had lower PASI scores. 
And so the authors advise against discontinuing biologic therapy, instead recommending increasing the interval between doses if you want to give it a try, which I think is what a lot of us do in practice. It is indeed mm-hmm. what I do. So if I have a patient, I'm like, well, you've been clear for a year. Let's try spacing out your dose and see what happens. And maybe sometimes we'll get lucky. But according to this study, it's not really going to be all that often. It's very interesting. I think that, you know, these discussions are just so fruitful for how we're going to take care of patients in clinic and like in the real world. Um, The real world intervened in a major way in 2020 with the viral pandemic that swept the globe. So I have kind of a companion article to that one that is out of the American Journal of Clinical Dermatology from 2022, entitled Time to Relapse After Discontinuing Systemic Treatment for Psoriasis, a Systematic Review. This is by authors Mary Masson-Regnault and Carl Paul, and they are out of the institutions of departments of dermatology in the University Hospital Center in France. So I probably should have said hospital, potentially. Uh, But basically the background of this is to look at what happens when medications have to be discontinued for psoriasis. And they looked at a lot of trials to accomplish this goal. They actually did a relatively exhaustive systematic search to try to find articles to include in this and were able to find 30 articles published before April 21st that were included in this systematic review. And they assessed what happened after different systemic agents for psoriasis were discontinued, including traditional anti-psoriatic medications such as methotrexate and cyclosporin, including the TNF antagonists, interleukin-17 antagonists, IL-12, 23, and 23 antagonists, and some of the Janus kinase inhibitors. They noted, as would be expected, because this is gathering of multiple like diverse studies, that the definitions of relapse and the definitions of you know, successful treatment are going to be different across each different trial. So comparing these gets to be a little bit difficult, but I think that they do a handy job of sort of managing that difficulty in this article. As probably will not surprise you, um, the the agents that took the, the longest to relapse, so the agents that gave the greatest protection against relapse after discontinuation of treatment for the longest period of time are IL-23 medications. And that shouldn't surprise us because those are the ones we dose least frequently, right? So our IL-23s, we dose much less frequently than we dose most of our IL-17s and for sure our TNF-alpha drugs. The uh, kind of parameters that they looked at, they looked at both 50% of loss of POSI improvement, they looked at investigators' global analysis and, and dropping more than two points in that assessment. And they also looked in some of the drugs at loss of POSI-90. And sorry to back up for a sec, but the reason we dose those IL-23 drugs less frequently, I presume, is because they have longer half-lives. Yes, in fact. And I shall actually reference a very useful figure in this article that might be good for study for people who are training in training and ready to take the in-training exam or the certification exam. So as we were discussing, discontinuation of biologics is non-ideal most of the time because you can lose response. Patients can form antibodies that block the efficacy of the drug. They can also have recrudescence of the disease. But sometimes it might be necessary for certain reasons, such as a viral pandemic when people didn't know yet that the biologics wouldn't elevate patients' risk. They also bring forward, of course, the consideration of pregnancy. Um, Now that we have cetalizumab pegol, which is a pegylated antibody that shouldn't cross the placenta and has been designated as safe in both pregnancy and breastfeeding, that would be a logical choice for that. But prior to that, even though the TNF-alpha inhibitors were considered to be category B in the older 
um, kind of nomenclature for pregnancy risk. Some people still would prefer not to be on any kind of systemic intervention if possible during pregnancy, and that's completely understandable. Um, in 2015, the five-letter system of grading medications for pregnancy was kind of discontinued and in favor of describing which period of the pregnancy the agent is more troublesome in. And they, they were useful categories, but I know that they were somewhat of an oversimplification. So as we discussed, not to be surprised by the IL-23 inhibitors, which have the longest half-lives, had also the longest protection for time to relapse, with the leader being rizinkizumab by kind of a long, a long shot here. So rizinkizumab performed very well. Um, one of the reasons you can remember this is the reason Skyrizi is called Skyrizi is because Rizinkizumab performed so well in the trials that the company that makes it wanted to connect its brand name to its generic name. So a lot of us, when that name came out, we were like, Sky Rizzy? <laughs> kind of sounds like some kind of rap artist or something. Uh, hi, I'm Little Sky Rizzy. I'm going to drop some bars. I, I'm not a rapper, obviously. But, <laughs> but Drop they, some bars, Drop Michelle. some bars, <laughs> yeah. So, but Rizinkizumab did very well, um, and it was the leader in terms of prevention of relapse for the longest period of time, um, yes, more than 40 said, weeks. Yeah, I'm, you just said it. They <laughs> said the medium time to loss of PASI 90 yeah. was 42 weeks for Rizinkizumab. That's yeah. like a long time. So we've discussed a previous article where they compared biologic efficacy and then you and I compared them by cost as well and decided that uh, the cost may have changed since then. That was uh, like mm -hmm. nine months ago. But <laughs> Rizinkizumab, Enkucelcumab, and Brodalumab were all pretty good in terms of efficacy and frequency of dosing. Brodalumab is a lot cheaper, but you have to do the whole REMS thing because of potential suicide. So if you don't want to deal with that, which I think most people don't, then it's guselkimab or rizinkizumab are kind of tied. They're about the same cost. They're about the same efficacy. But this suggests that perhaps rizinkizumab should win out. Because and what was that for guselkimab in terms of time off med? So the the time off med for guselkimab, which is tremfaya, um, that was just under 30 weeks. So it was pretty you know, good still. Not bad, not bad. Um, so Rizinkizumab, Skyrizi, easy. That's the P19 subunit of IL-23, as is Tildrakizumab, which is Illumia. I have the dumbest way I remember this. Do you want to know what it is? I do. Tell Drake he's ill. <laughs> I'm so horrible. Because like that's sometimes used as a compliment and Drake is kind of a, a rapper person. Um, so P19 subunit of IL-23 with Teldrakizumab. And then Guselkumab or Tremphaya is the same thing. Um, Bimakizumab was also studied in this article that is not FDA approved yet. It's going to come out under the brand name Bimslex. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. It is a little different. So this in the kind of head of the pack, this is a change because it's not a 23 inhibitor. It's an IL-17A and IL-17F inhibitor. And it actually can inhibit both of those individually as well as the heterodimer of the two. So it has some different properties than some of the IL-17 inhibitors. So on the heels of the IL-23 inhibitors for longevity come the IL-17 inhibitors. And leading the pack is this new drug, the bimbicizumab, that's not out yet, that bimzelex. The next one after that was secukinumab. Um, secukinumab is cosentix. It's an IL-17A, as is ixikizumab, which is TALTS. Uh, sorry, ixikizumab is TALTS, yes. yes. Um, ixikizumab, which is TALTS, which is IL also IL-17A. And those had pretty decent protection from time to relapse, um, but not quite as robust as the IL-23 inhibitors. So those were in the order of around 20 weeks total relapse. 
the ustekinumab, which inhibits the P40 subunit. I should have been doing this this whole time, of IL-1223. Um, that one had around that same level, about 20 weeks. And then after that come the TNF inhibitors, adalimumab, infliximab, cetalizumab, which is pegylated, the set, that is um, cetalizumab pegyl. Those three had, you know, sort of more middling um, rates of prevention of relapse, but still did fairly well. And then following that was brodalumab, the drug you were just talking about with the suicide risk. Bro, it, check bro. out my silic blouse. Look at my silic blouse, yes. And you also want to go, you okay, bro? Because you want to make sure they're all right. Yes. Right. So Except we, that we've also discussed that the suicide thing might not be real. Right. But you just have to remember the, the association. Um, tofacitinib, which is a small molecule oral inhibitor of Janus kinase. This is really a pan-Janus kinase inhibitor. So it really hits Janus kinase 1, 2, 3, and um, tick 2 but it hits 1 and 3 most. Not approved for psoriasis in this country. Correct. Um, then after that was etanercept. Remember, as a TNF inhibitor, it is different than its cousins in that it's a receptor base to it, not a antibody base to it. So it has a slightly different metabolism, as we know from its dosing. So twice weekly for the loading period. It really should be a twice weekly drug, honestly, based off of its half-life. Um, then after that, methotrexate, cyclosporin, and apremolast, those patients lost their response in about four weeks. So you can predict most of this based off of the half-lives of the drug. The protection to, uh, of time until relapse almost perfectly aligns with half-life. So it doesn't not make sense why it works in that way. But these are things that you might want to consider if you have a patient who might need therapeutic interruption. Another option they bring forward, and I have experienced clinically, is a patient who's traveling to a country that has limited medical resources who might not have access to those therapeutics while they're abroad. And I've had patients that have gone on mission trips and things to underdeveloped parts of the world, and getting those medications there wasn't really feasible. So a longer half-life medication in that setting might be um, attractive. Now, of course, there's a flip side to that coin. If you have a patient who can't be trusted with immunosuppression, then you don't want to give them a medication with a three-month half-life. You know, you want to think about giving them something you can have precision control over and stop immediately if you need to. And that might be more relevant in some of the patients that have what I call affectionately lupriasis, which is sort of like this weird lupus psoriasis overlap where their immune system is just trying to make autoimmune disease. They get more infections. And those patients you might not want to use as long-lived of an immunosuppressant because you might not be able to shut it off if it would be necessary. I feel like some of these molecules would take umbrage at being referred to as immunosuppressants. <laughs> You're correct. Some of them are more anti-inflammatory. So some of our newer agents have more, much more narrow profiles, and the risk is significantly decreased for most of them. There are still certain specific ones that you have to think of with, with each of these new biologics, but certainly they're less broadly immunosuppressive than the traditional TNF-alpha inhibitors. You mentioned drug-neutralizing antibodies. I have yet to see convincing data that those antibodies actually do anything aside from be detective in occasional studies. There are some medications that don't seem to be able to get recaptured. So that's a new type of um, study that the FDA is requesting for newer drugs that are being, improved, uh, being approved, where they have these crossover arms and some of them will have actually mandatory drug discontinuation, and then they monitor the period to relapse. That's a newer style of trial that wasn't always um, required by the FDA. And then they also look at recapture data, seeing if you can get back to the same posi 
after treatment cessation that you had previously. And in some of those cases, they're not showing the same efficacy of the medication in some patients. So I don't know that it's something that we need to lose sleep over, but I do think it's something that can happen. And I have seen it clinically when a patient has had to be off drug because of insurance issues usually. And then they come back and we're never ever to really, we're never able to really recapture that first higher level of clearance. So I think that it's something that can happen. I think that it's relevant for some patients. I don't know that it's like, a pan, like an epidemic of, of medication efficacy loss, but it's something to be considered about. Hmm. I guess in psoriasis, you're probably all right because there's 60 other psoriasis biologics now you can switch to, though you don't have that in atopic dermatitis yet, for example. So there's kind of good news and bad news here, right? The bad news is that, well, darn it, it turns out psoriasis probably is a chronic disease, so people can't really stop their medicines. But the good news is... You know, every patient is a different human being, and maybe they don't all need the dosing that was sorted out in the studies, right? So if Rizinkizumab, you have 42 weeks until you lose your PASI-90, then getting an injection every eight months might be what you need instead of every month or two. I honestly don't remember what it currently is, um, but maybe some people can do it that way just like we know some patients probably need more frequent dosing in order to get under control. So I think that overall, these studies are helpful in informing me of the current state of the art in terms of discontinuing psoriasis biologics and kind of validate my approach and what I think is the approach of most practicing dermatologists of once the patient is clear for a while, and what a while is, I would probably say at least six months, probably more like a year, it makes sense to start increasing the frequency of their dose and kind of see what's the right dose for them. I 100% agree. One of the arts of medicine is treating each person who's in front of you as the individual that they are. So there really isn't a cookie cutter approach to medicine. Um, people are too different. Like even in the same family, people might respond differently to medications. I actually have a pair of identical twins that I take care of and they're on different biologics because one does better on one and the other one does better on the other one. So we just have to kind of treat the human being who's in front of us. Well, we also have to treat the podcast that's in front of us. And that podcast is Dermosphere, the dermatology podcast. So every 10 episodes, we like to discuss briefly what we learned over the previous 10 episodes just to like remind ourselves because people forget stuff. I forget stuff all the time. Who are you? What are we doing? <laughs> so um, the last time we did this, of course, was episode 90. So we don't need to discuss anything from that prior because we all remember that, of course. <laughs> so let's remember episode 91. Episode 91 was a great episode in one sense because it included our friend Jules Lipoff on the Woo! podcast. So dermatologist and a very creative guy who do, does a lot of different projects. Um, he came on to discuss a number of things, including connecting with people and with your muse. We also discussed atopic dermatitis therapy. There was a meta-analysis that I think kind of validated our current thoughts that the JAK inhibitors, specifically upadacitinib, seem to be the most efficacious, but not quite as safe, perhaps, as the biologics like dupilumab and tralokinumab, though still quite safe. We talked about an entity called bullous hemorrhagic dermatitis, quite uncommon, but can be induced by anticoagulants and can look scary like hemorrhagic bullae, but it's okay. Now, we also discussed some mimics of child abuse, so things to be aware of, especially if you think you see something that could be child abuse. Here's are other more benign things that it could be instead. 
We always would prefer for that to be the case. Episode 92, we looked at the terbanabulin trials. There were two identically designed trials for terbanabulin 1% ointment applied once daily for five days, and that was found to be superior to vehicle for the treatment of actinic keratosis, but was associated with transient local reactions and some recurrence after one year. Um, trials to comparing the terbanabulin with conventional treatments um, need to be done, basically. Uh, pruritic and dyskeratotic dermatoses. This is one of my favorite zebra entities. Um, this is a condition that can be caused in patients who have some kind of immunosuppression and is attributed to human polyomaviruses 6 and 7. This can cause this pruritic skin eruption with a distinctive histologic pattern called peacock plumage. And it's actually very pretty. There are these round dyskeratotic cells in the layers of the stratum corneum intermixed with orthokeratosis. And so it looks like a little peacock tail. It's actually very pretty. And so that is the H, the human polyomavirus 6 and 7 associated pruritic and dyskeratotic dermatosis. We also talked about vitamin D and photodynamic therapy. In this small study, patients took oral vitamin D 10,000 international units daily for 5 to 14 days prior to debridement and PDT for actinic keratosis, and they had superior clearance to patients who were not treated with the oral vitamin D. It was well tolerated and improved clinical response. And then finally, the spesolumab trials. And if you're like I am, and you saw sp and your brain went spinosad, what does scabies have to do with generalized pustular psoriasis? You can actually use that to help you remember that you know generalized pustular psoriasis and sort of acral pustulosis can also kind of overlap clinically. But spinosad is the anti-scabetic drug. Spesolimab is a medication that targets interleukin-36 to treat generalized pustular psoriasis. And we discussed in this particular publication, the two randomized trials that were involving patients with generalized pustular psoriasis treated with uh, IL-36 inhibition that gave higher incidence of lesion clearance at one week, but it was associated with infections and systemic drug reactions. So use, but use with caution. In episode 93, we discussed dermatology in space, or what in we have to space. say. Thank you. Derm in, in space. space. Uh, Eleonora Marcacci, member of Team Dermosphere, came on to discuss that one. Uh, space flight is not, not a common thing that humans do, uh, but if you do do it, you're actually kind of likely to have some kind of dermatologic issue, but fortunately, they're fairly mild. Also in episode 93, we discussed a review of plantar wart treatments. There were some unbelievably good results with a cantharidin podophyllin mix, which uh, do seem a little bit too good to be true. But we also discussed the article that showed that they had such a good cure rate. Basically, you put this stuff on, the patient develops a big old blister in that area. You have them come back the next day and you remove the blister roof to hopefully get rid of any viral particles that are there. Um, I've actually tried this with what we have around, which is like Cantheridin Plus, which is a very similar product. I haven't yet had significant success with it. Michelle, have you tried it at all? The peeling off of the blister? Yeah. Like I actually have the patients do it at home because I don't want to make mm -hmm. them come back. But like a savvy patient that I think can handle it. I put it on. I say, this is probably going to blister. Assuming it does, use sterile instruments to just snip off the blister roof tomorrow morning. I've had some patients that I've had do that for like discomfort and things along that along that order. I haven't done it in enough of a systematized way to really evidence improvement, but it, conceptually it makes sense, right? Because the blistering um, properties of cantharidin don't necessarily kill viral particles. And so you may have viable virus still in that roof. So I think removing it can make sense. They might just need to do a different kind of wound care. So you have to think about that possibility. 
Yeah. Well, I've only tried it in two patients, and one just saw me a couple days ago and wasn't any better, and the other one didn't come back. So maybe he's better. Um, that plantar wart review, aside from this cantharidin concoction, the highest curate was found with bleomycin, curate of 83%. That's intralesional, of course. Mm-hmm. We talked about congenital melanocytic nevi and CNS abnormalities, a very reassuring article for me. So you want to get an MRI if the patient has two or more congenital melanocytic nevi, as long as one of them is medium-sized. So you probably remember that medium-sized is projected adult size of 15 millimeters or greater. So that's a relief because before this study, the data suggested that it was two congenital nevi of any size. They should get an MRI. We discussed a trial of this newly approved drug for psoriasis, ducravacitinib. It's approved for psoriasis now. It's a JAK inhibitor. It specifically blocks this JAK receptor called TYK2, T-Y-K-2, which I think probably plays into its brand name, which is so TYK2. Um, 58% of patients on the trial achieved a PASI 75, so actually kind of crummy compared to the efficacy of biologics, but the good news is it's a pill, and it's got the side effects that JAK inhibitors have. And we also briefly discussed a little surgical pearl of intraoperative retention sutures, so especially if you're like in between most stages, putting a stitch in to like pull the defect you know, not all the way together, but to some degree together in the direction to which you're planning on closing it can help make the final closure easier. I love that. So next we were in our um, episode 94, correct? Yep. Perfect. So in episode 94, we talked about dupilumab for perforating dermatoses. Interestingly, some studies have shown that IL-4 and IL-13 act directly on itch sensory neurons, which can promote chronic pruritus. IL-4 can also promote neural hypersensitivity to other factors such as histamine, chloroquine, IL-31, and cytokine thymic stromal lymphopoietin, which is so hot, so hot right now. Um, So dupilumab was shown in this particular publication to improve the control and management of patients who had um, uh, perforating disorders. And that makes sense because they kind of overlap both clinically and histopathologically with paragonodules. And they thought about this being potentially an effective treatment to consider for treatment-resistant uh, treatment-resistant acquired perforating disorders. We then also talked about ASEP syndrome, which is adenopathy and extensive skin patch overlying a plasmacytoma. So this was first described 16 years ago, and you have a slowly expanding red or brown patch, which is the classic variant, or a plaque, which is more morphia-like, overlying a solitary plasmacytoma of the bone. It's important to recognize this early as it could be life-saving. Uh, patients can have poly they can progress, sorry, to polyneuropathy, organomegaly, endocrinopathy, and M-protein syndrome with skin changes, which is Poems syndrome, and that can be fatal. So recognizing this is very important, the kind of appearance of the plaque can be a peau de range type appearance. So this is something to add to your list of bad things that can present as a peau de range plaque. Typical locations can include above the rib cage. So this even could potentially occur adjacent to breast skin, something to be aware of. And um, they can also happen in other parts of the body, of course, but by the time of presumptive diagnosis, 40% of patients can also fulfill the diagnostic criteria for POEMS. So recognizing ASOP syndrome may actually keep you from developing full-blown POEMS, which is kind of fun because you could think about writing a poem about ASOP, so it'd be fun. Ulcerations in acute aortic um, occlusion. This is a rare syndrome that can cause substantial morbidity and mortality. Perennial ulcers have been rarely appro- reported with this condition, secondary to microembolism of an underlying thrombus. So this is a patient case presentation that they talked about these abrupt onset painful ulcerations in the perineum that were associated with a acute aortic occlusion. We talked about xylazine induced ulcers. Xylazine is an alpha-2 androgenic 
receptor agonist that's used as a sedative and analgesic in veterinary medicine. Unfortunately, it is being illicitly supplied to persons who inject drugs, which we are now calling PWID persons who inject drugs. And there is a high prevalence of the xylazine in fentanyl use in many of these areas. This can cause these xylazine-induced skin ulcers that um, can be quite necrotic appearing. They can cause abscesses. They can cause osteomyelitis and significant hospitalization risk. So this is something to be aware of, especially in a patient that you are concerned of having IV drug use. We talked about intravenous immunoglobulin and dermatomyositis. It was a 16-week trial treating adults with dermatomyositis, and the patient's who had at least minimal improvement based on a composite score was greater in the IVIG arm than those who received placebo. IVIG is associated with adverse events, including thromboembolism. And lastly, we talked about methotrexate and melanoma, which was a systemic review and meta-analysis that showed that low-dose low methotrexate exposure was associated with an increased melanoma risk, but the absolute risk could be considered negligible. Listeners, if you are enjoying us recap the previous 10 episodes, then you'll love episode 95 because that is our Dermy Awards. At the end of every calendar year, we give out some awards to some of the articles and some of the authors in various categories. So go listen to that one because it's a lot of fun. A few highlights are the winner for article most helpful in daily clinic was from episode 79, Suicidality Decreases While on Isotretinoin. The winner for Most Impactful Article, also from episode 79, was the Oral Surveillance Study of Jack Inhibitor Risks. And the winner for Best Overall was in episode 82, which was a discussion with Dr. Steve Feldman, who came on to discuss, among other things, behavioral economics and dermatology. So jumping then after that to episode 96, we had the excellent Dr. Feldman on to discuss behavioral economics. We're doing a little mini series with him where he comes on and discusses with us from his book on how to help patients have better compliance with their therapies. We talked about hormonal IUDs and androgenic skin conditions, and we found a positive association between hormonal IUD implantation and acne vulgaris and negative associations between hormonal IUD implantation and hirsutism, alopecia, and rosacea. We, t we talked also about acquired ichthyosis, which is a non-hereditary cutaneous disorder characterized by dry, rough skin with prominent scaling on significant portions of the body, which has been associated with malignancies, autoimmune and inflammatory diseases, metabolic endocrine and infectious disease, and medication use. Most studies of the acquired ichthyosis under the microscope demonstrate hyperkeratosis with reduced or absent granular layer. It can be linked to a bunch of different conditions. So working up a patient with this presentation can be somewhat overwhelming. They gave a great algorithm for, for doing that. So I'd suggest looking at that publication. And then finally, um, the article that, uh, you know, kind of followed up the article that won the Dermy uh, for most useful in clinic was the isotretinoin improving neuropsychiatric outcomes, which showed that isotretinoin was not independently associated with excess adverse neuropsychiatric outcomes at the population level. But of course, individualize your treatment to treat the patient in front of you. In episode 97, we discussed that atopic dermatitis does not increase the risk of venous thromboembolism, nor just treating it with a JAK inhibitor. We discussed this rare conditioned congenital disseminated pyogenic granuloma. Babies can be born with a bunch of scattered PGs, apparently. They're not infantile hemangiomas, so just look for that. We learned how to take care of collodion babies, so very practical tips. If you've got a baby like this in the NICU, you'll probably want to look up that article. We learned that it's bad to delay treatment for melanoma, which is what we all suspected, but now there's data saying it's true. Treat it early. 
we learned about another rare baby condition called infantile anogenital digitate keratoses. Not a dangerous thing, but can look a little bit like anogenital warts, but it ain't. And we learned about a case report of a woman who treated her actinic keratosis with aloe vera. Perhaps a harbinger of things to come. <laughs> In episode 98, we looked over an article that reevaluated the use of spironolactone in pregnancy. And the results were relatively assuring for accidental exposure, as they were only able to find five male infants that had been exposed to spironolactone in utero um, that had no change in, in genital feminization. The retrospective examination of patient databases was advocated to further evaluate this. There are limited animal studies and human cases evaluating the safety of spironolactone, but there is some suggestion that it's not as terrifying as we might think initially. We talked about another scary article, niacinamide, riboside, and cancer. So you might have seen this hit the interwebs. Uh, nicotinamide or niacinamide, riboside, these are kind of similar um, vitamins of the B3 family. These are advertised to restore cellular NAD levels that can help improve metabolism and longevity and things like this. They've become very popular in infusion salons that have sort of popped up all over the country. And this particular study was looking at the potential for worsening of prognosis with metastatic disease, specifically triple negative breast cancer in an animal model. In this specific study, the supplementation seems to increase the cancer prevalence and metastasis risk to the brain of this triple negative breast cancer. So consideration of cancer risk, I think, is very important in patients receiving these infusions. Um, I think this kind of study is important for supplements that are sort of wild westing it a little bit. So there are places where you can kind of walk in, talk to, you know, usually a nurse or um, typically some kind of medical provider initially, and then you get sort of set up with an infusion protocol where you're getting intravenous nicotinamide riboside. And I think there's a general gestalt of us to think of vitamins as just safe things. But we have to remember that any vitamin in high levels can become toxic or have unintended side effects. And so I think that this article was kind of to address that. Now, does that mean we need to stop recommending oral niacinamide supplementation to our patients? I think the answer to that is a resounding no. Um, intravenous high dose nicotinamide or niacinamide, I think, is different than oral but also I think you need to look at the patient's baseline risks. And if you have somebody who's on active cancer treatment or has a high risk cancer that is not in remission, I think discussion with the oncologist is prudent. We talk about TikTok having information of at about atopic dermatitis, but at what cost? So this was a cross-sectional study looking at viewer engagement, content quality, and viewer experience for eczema-related medical content on TikTok between healthcare professionals and non-healthcare professionals. And the study found that compared to non-healthcare professionals, the healthcare professional videos were of higher quality and had a superior viewing experience, but viewer engagement didn't differ significantly between healthcare professionals and non-healthcare professionals. So I um, applaud our colleagues who have gone out into the interwebs and are spreading the good word of how to actually take care of your skin. Um, that doesn't involve just sticking snails from your garden all over your face or some of the things that you do see on TikTok. And then we also read, did an article about non-invasive treatments for calcinosis cutis, which can occur with deposition of calcium in the skin and subcutaneous tissue and can cause pain, reduced mobility, and chronic infections. They talked about some different therapeutics as a potential option, including topical or intralesional sodium thiosulfate, which I've personally used for patients with calcinosis, extracorporeal shockwave lithotripsy, which I haven't used, but sounds exciting, and laser for calcinosis cutis. And they were able to find partial or complete remission after monotherapy in a significant proportion of cases with each of these treatments, both the sodium thiosulfate as well as the laser-enabled 
um, removal of this at about 50 to 60% success rate for each of those treatments. So I thought that that was very interesting. And then finally, we talked again with Dr. Feldman about the concept of anchoring, which is sort of giving a patient a forced frame of reference to help improve their understanding of the options you're presenting them with. In episode 99, if we are still alive, we learned about (laughs) the ideal buffering of lidocaine, which is three to one with a bicarb, which uh, I've been doing. I have to say my pediatric patients still don't like getting stuck with needles, but (laughs) the study says that that's a better way to do it. We learned that melanoma microsatellites, which are a histologic finding, do carry a poor prognosis with them. We learned about some aesthetic patient archetypes. So if you treat cosmetic patients, then these are some categories to which you can into which you can place your patients with the idea of increasing your ability to develop rapport and kind of getting an idea of what they might want. We learned about ILVEN, I-L-V-E-N, inflammatory linear verrucous epidermal nevus. It's a heterogeneous thing that's a, kind of a common endpoint for several different sorts of genetic mutations that you can find. And Dr. Feldman joined us again as part of our mini-series to discuss specifically the behavioral economics concept of context and how it applies to medicine and to dermatology. And then, of course, our last episode was episode 100, where we chatted with a bunch of faculty from the Hawaii Dermatology Seminar and benefited from their wisdom and insight. And, of course... On this episode, we discussed more about what we learned at Hawaii Dermatology, and we also learned about what happens if you discontinue psoriasis biologics. Thanks so much for joining us, listeners. We always love hanging out with you. If you would like to hang out with us some more, you can do so in one of many places. We have social media. Yes, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also find us on our website, dermospherepodcast.com, which has our entire archive and also links to all of the original articles that we discuss. You can also find us on our other podcast, which, though it has been on a break for a while, is still out there. That podcast is called SkinCast. It is aimed more at the lay consumer, and it is about 15 to 20 minutes per episode. We cover individual topics such as contact dermatitis to Halloween makeup, hair and acne and diet and psoriasis and how to take care of your skin, sun protection, all kinds of fun things. So that is a nice um, sort of layperson directed podcast and has several good episodes that I think are very useful in patient education. We also, of course, want to say thank you to our institutions. Thank you to the University of Utah for supporting the podcast. And thanks to Texas Tech for lending us Michelle. And speaking of people who support us, we have a large team of enthusiastic medical students who help us out with the podcast. Thanks very much for all you guys do. Our team includes Morgan Dykeman, Guy Kusecki, Eleonora Marcacci, Michael Birdsall, Aparna Nayak, Nehadeo, Haley Walsh, and Angie Wong. Very much appreciate everything that you guys do. And of course, listeners, we appreciate you too. Thanks for spending the time with us today. By the time this is released, the AAD meeting will be over. We haven't been to it yet, but hopefully we'll have seen some of you there. And we will see all of you again in two weeks. Thank you.